I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Chris Olberding is the final guest in our What We Wore Tabor mini-series. Chris offers insight into the changing manufacturing landscape in America and shares how he founded his iconic shirt collection, Gitman Vintage. Chris, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure being with you. I'm Swedish, and I'm thinking that maybe Olberding might be Norwegian somehow uh, close enough i mean I, I grew up in the land of norwegians and swedes <laughs> the cars in the household were vovels and sops so pretty close <laughs> but I, i'm german and where are you from uh from minneapolis the land of prince the land of prince and dylan and um who else what other famous f scott fitzgerald so yeah plenty that's plenty. really cool so did you grow up with with an interest in fashion? I don't think you did for some reason. And also, um, I don't know that we've met. I feel like we've met, but I will say every time we have Gitman trunk shows at the store, they're so bananas that I don't I don't know that I'm able to talk to anybody. I mean, yeah, <laughs> no, no, we we have met. I've, I've, I was I've attended one, but we've had more than that. Yeah, um, usually we have them kind of going on simultaneously, so it's, it's hard to be in, in, in you know more than one one event, but always enjoyed doing those. Growing up, yeah, growing up in Minneapolis, um, there wasn't so much of that in Minneapolis. I grew up in a very kind of sportive household. You know, only in retrospect, I think you start to kind of appreciate, I mean, you know, for me, my father was, you know, you know, the kind of, the, the parent or family member who I kind of was inspired most by and kind of looked up to. And in retrospect, um, you know, his kind of style was unique, I think. You know, he biked to work all the time, whether it was winter or summer. And it would be, you know, Carhartt pants, a New Balance, and a Jansport t-shirt. Um, you know, very, That sounds cool. Yeah, it was. And he, he had this wonderful... Where did he work? That he could, uh, he could do that and wear that? Well, yeah, he worked downtown at the place. Uh, it's called Northern States Power Company. And, um, and he loved to bike to work. He didn't like to drive or take public transportation. And he had this wonderful steel DeRosa bike with sew-up tires. Um, and he had this massive, this is before, this is the era before kryptonite locks. And he had this huge steel chain link, I don't know how long it was, eight feet long, wrapped around his waist. Oh my God. Um, that's what he would, he would take off the both of the tires and lock it all up. And it was, it was quite a look. I was very impressed, particularly when he'd go out in January. And I was just gonna say. To, uh, yeah, in yeah. Minneapolis in January, that is hardcore. Yeah, it was indeed. <laughs> it was indeed. So he was he was really, I mean, he was a sportsman and, and and because of I mean he sailed and skied and tennis and you know D1 football and all that stuff. He was someone who I looked to as being, you know, dressed with something that was situational. He had kind of clothing for all different occasions, and it wasn't he wasn't a dandy by any means, but you know, for me it was kind of uh, a cue to that dress was you know situation was this saying there's no such thing as bad weather there's bad clothing that's a sweeter um, thing <laughs> and 
how's it sound in Swedish? I can't say it. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but that is, it is a, it's a, it's an old Swedish um, saying. Okay. Okay. But yeah, it's so true, right? Yeah, I, I guess it wasn't really till I got to New York where you know I started to kind of, you know, get more inspired directly to people around me as I started to kind of figure out you know what I kind of wanted to do. But it took it took a long time to kind of get there and figure it out. And you're still figuring it out. And I was always just kind of curious as to, you know, things that look different, that were worn different that were appropriated for, for different, from different kind of categories and applied in different ways. And so it was more of, a, of an evolution of kind of style, if you will, that's still evolving. <laughs> I think tennis was a, was a big part of your life. How, how old were you when you started playing? Well, tennis is something, I mean, I remember, you know, playing with, with my father as a kid, you know, hockey was my go-to. That was, that was the big sport for me growing up. And then stopped playing tennis and then took it up seriously, competitively about 10, 15 years ago. And always found a way within, you know, you know, with vintage and, and, and working, you know, collections to find out a way to kind of bridge my passion um, into, into a certain offering. And sometimes they'd be little winks and nods, a little, you know, tennis, vintage tennis racket quote here and there on a fabric or an embroidery to something as... Yeah is full blown as we did this huge collaboration with New Balance last summer for the US Open. And so that was the kind of the height of, you know, passion coming to fruition in, in, in you know, your offerings and, and what you do. So that, that was a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of, it's going to be hard to repeat that. So I, I got to look for another sport. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know how old you are, but who is your, your tennis icon? Are, were you like a Vetus Garolitis or were you a Bjorn uh, McEnroe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love, I love the rivalry between the two and watching it and, you know, Wimbledon with my dad, a little black and white TV on the porch, you know, that was very memorable. But in terms of, I, I have a one hand and backhand. So, you know, Federer, Rafa, I love those guys, but anyone who has a one hand backhand because I think it's so beautiful and stylish um, yeah. because you can do, you can do more things with it and it's now everyone plays this you know two-handed almost kind of very mechanical you know everyone looks like a, a lesser version of Djokovic and so those one-handers stand up. You didn't start out in fashion will you talk to me about where you went to school and what you studied and and how you sure I wasn't ready for college right after I graduated and work saved up some money and then my first job lo and behold was like right into this although that's I, I, it was kind of circular how I got back into fashion, but my first job was at Barney's in 1991, working at the penthouse. I don't know if you ever made it to the penthouse. Remind me what happened there. Well, this was the original location, right? Yeah, yeah. Barney's, so 17th Avenue. And the penthouse was um, obviously top floor, and then there was a lower floor, sixth, it was like kind of six and a half floor, so to speak. Uh -huh. um, but this is where they sold international sportswear. Oh, so it cool. was... You know, you know, Yoji, Miyaki, Comte Garçon, Gili, Gautier. Um, but that was, I got that job. I knew I had to have a job before I moved out to New York and, and got that job before I moved out here, came out for an interview through a friend. And, Did you interview with the Pressmans or, I mean, in 91? No, no, I didn't, but they were, they were constantly on the floor. Uh, Gene in particular, I, I remember one instance of helping Val Kilmer. I don't know what film he just did. Maybe it's Batman or I don't know what it was. And, and I, re I remember Gene calling me uh, on the phone. What did he buy? What did he buy? You know? 
what did he get? And I said, oh, you know, a couple of Miyagi t-shirts. And I took him down. He really wanted Armani. So I took him down to the second floor and passed him off to so-and-so. But it was it was fun. My favorite customer, and I, I don't have my book. It was so long ago. But um, I was working quite often, maybe like every six months or so with Pedro Almodovar. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And that and was. What did, and what did he like? What did he buy? Oh, he was a comedy son nut. He loved, <laughs> he loved comb. So those were, and that was, that was my first suit. My first like entry into that was, no, my first suit was a, a navy blue gabardine, double-breasted Yoji suit. Yeah. Um, and that, that gabardine was bulletproof. It was just so <laughs> dense. Right out of high school, you moved to New York, worked at Barney's in the penthouse. And then how long were you there? And, and were you like, maybe I'll just stay here? Or was it, was it clear that you needed to go on and do something else? Yeah, no, I mean, I knew I wanted to to go to school, and so this was a wonderful opportunity to to work and be, um, you know, financially independent and and get a studio and um, lived with a girlfriend for a while and then got my own place and then felt like I was kind of confident and kind of stable enough that I was I was ready for school. I was ready to kind of focus on that. And I felt like it was time too. I didn't want to you know work at Barney's for the rest of my life. So so then I applied to schools in and around New York. Along the way, met some people who were studying in New York and it, it kind of seemed like it was difficult for them to focus. I think it'd be challenging to, yeah. to go to NYU or Columbia. For Columbia's sure. a little bit more isolated, but um, so I wound up going to, uh, to school in New Jersey at Rutgers in New Brunswick, which was a good, maybe 70 minute commute. So you had, you had the best of both worlds and just fell in love with, with college and school and classes. And that was kind of my, my career trajectory. I thought I was going to do that and wanted to be a leisured scholar. And, <laughs> and after graduation. Wearing Yoji Yamamoto. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there, there's a story to that. And then um, majored in English and classics, double major, and then worked for publishing in between undergrad and grad school. And then went to grad school at Michigan in Ann Arbor. And, and you know, it was, it was great. It was what I wanted to do. And studying um, literature there? Yeah, yeah, I was, was teaching, was a TA, and, and I remember getting, you know, you'd have these end of semester, you know, kind of class evaluations, and and quite a few of them say, like, Chris was, was you know, you know, great teacher to this, but also very stylish, you know, it was like <laughs> one of those funny little, like, uh, little side notes. I'm glad you didn't lose it. Yeah, no, it was fun, <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was, it was, the, the showstopper was my wonderful four button you know, kind of sack geely jacket that had the beautiful beautiful colors and I'd wear that all the time because it felt the most professorial. Um Geely a genius. Oh my god the, the stuff in the early 90s I mean just the jackets and the linings and the silhouettes it was just it and, was art. Yeah and anybody almost anybody who's in the fashion industry still like from that time everybody worked there at some point it's like um, I mean, the real fashion people worked at Geely for some for some amount of time. Also, early Matsuda too. I love Matsuda. Mm. It was just one <laughs> of these. But Geely, Geely was fun. So, so the kids at Ann Arbor and Michigan didn't know what hit them. <laughs> with, you know. I love it. You went down that road, and then were you like, "Is this it?" Or like, how did you get back to fashion? Yeah. So, so then you know, I, I stuck for that for a while. A lot of my friends, you know, fellow grad students who had a, a much more direct trajectory in terms of their schooling, went to boarding school and, and went to 
you know, Ivies and things like that, they were having a very difficult time getting jobs. And it, it was a challenge of the market and it's continued to be so in the humanities. Yeah. And so I finished all my exams and, and didn't finish my PhD, finished my master's and came back to New York and worked for an academic press, which seemed like a kind of happy medium for Cambridge University. They have a big office here in New York and it's, it's the world's oldest press. That's um, cool. Started 1534, and we didn't have a president of the company. He was called the head printer. Oh my god, um, I love that! And you could dress really well for that too. I would think. Yeah, yeah. So that so that was fun, and did that for three years or so, and then it just kind of moved at this pace that was I don't know how you describe it, it was glacial. It would just take forever to get projects done because professors just don't like to publish. I mean, it's just they'll take you know five six years for a chapter or something. I'm exaggerating, but it was just not the pace, and I still was thinking about how I could bridge my education and, and, and my, my interest in, in clothing and culture, let's say, culture at large. Mm-hmm. And, and then I took some time off and, and just tried to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, at the time, my partner was working for Burberry and she introduced me to someone at Gitman because Burberry was, was having their sports shirts and dress shirts for North America made at Gitman huh. and said, you know, look, you know, you know, she, she told me like, see, see what they say. And, and so <laughs> I sat down and talked to them and, and, you know, through a series of interviews and they brought me on board and I started up selling Burberry dress sports shirts via trunk shows at select Burberry stores and started mm-hmm. up this small program. It was fun, but it wasn't, didn't feel right. But it was a big part of, of Gitman's business, Burberry, yeah. with a huge license contract. And then it was about maybe eight to ten months into that, Tom Brown contacted us, and my boss said, hey, do you know anything about this designer? I said, yeah, I've read some stuff about him. looks interesting and very different. And he <laughs> goes, do you want to oversee their, their production and help them through? And I said, yes, yes. So so started doing that. And then it was about maybe the second season with Tom Brown you know, working the Burberry, helping out Tom Brown and had this this little idea go off like, why is this large luxury brand having us make shirts in North America? And then why is this avant-garde up and coming New York designer wanting us to make shirts as well? And we're not doing anything at that point, given it really took their eye off of the brand. And so that kind of started me thinking about how we how I could create something different. And it was just kind of what they both, I think, were very interested in was a quality, authentic product being made at a good price. Do they come to you because they like the products that you make for yourself or that they've seen that you make? Or, or do they come in with their own designer and say, can you make this for us? Yeah, the, the Burberry was already in place when I was there. And I know the, the gentleman who hired me um, was from Saks and the president of Burberry at the time who really branded the chef, Rosemary Bravo. She was the former president of Saks. So she kind yeah. of, she brought over a few people. Um, Real visionary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to, exactly, to, to oversee production. And it was more cost effective to have, you know, at that time, most of Burberry was, they had multiple points of manufacturing for each specific classification. So their trench coats were made in New Jersey. That's crazy. Um, you know, <laughs> it was so crazy too because they're branding. I mean, now and probably through Rosemary, like they're 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 brand. Obviously, it's all about England and Great Britain made products. It's yeah. so interesting that they would have done that. 
I mean, Tom Brown makes total sense for me. Yeah. Verbery. And, and I guess I can see how that did get you thinking. And you were kind of like, why, what is happening here? <laughs> why, why are we doing this almost? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was more of, I understood it was, it was like a cash cow for us. It was a yeah. big business, a big brand. Um, there was more behind the scenes. I don't think it was necessarily, they didn't seek out getting it. They just sought out a, a high end quality manufacturer and we happened to be it. Whereas the Tom Brown, he grew up in Allentown. So I think there was either he wore Gitman as a kid or his father did or siblings or what have you. So there was a real, I think, local familiarity with the product because he could have gone to lots of other places, New England shirt, wherever, but chose us. So I think that was more of a, of a understanding of the heritage of the make and, and kind of drew him to it. Speaking of, can you tell us a little bit about Alfred and Shelley and, and the company and sort of where and why it was funded and, and all those things? Yeah, yeah. Ma- Max Gitman founded the company. He was a, a Brooklyn Ukrainian Jew and was manufacturing, uh, like many were, in what is now known as the Garment District in, in Manhattan. And that became, you know, you had the crash in 29. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people went belly up, became too expensive or just, you know, it was just impossible to to conduct business during that time. Yeah. And Max and a number of other people moved manufacturing to eastern Pennsylvania, in and around Allentown, a little bit further east. So this eastern Pennsylvania, there were maybe at its high point, maybe 15 to 20 different shirt manufacturers in this area. And is it, um, is it because there are mills there? Is it because there's a high percentage of people that have the skills to hand finish things? I mean, what, why no, there? No, I mean, I, I mean, look at, I mean, it's, it's no, the mills, mills, everything was always imported. American mills, fabric production has never been of a quality level. You, you do have some denim with the cone mill. There are some exceptions. I know. I'm from North Carolina, so I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> as far as, as cotton and mills, a lot of it was imported. Right. Um, but, but I mean, even going back, is there, you know, 1980, 70% of the clothing American bought in 1980 was made in the USA. Wow. That's so, unbelievable. Yeah. So you go back to this period, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to open American's closet wardrobe and find something not made in the USA. Hmm. Um, and so there was just a lot of manufacturing going on that was domestic and so this just happened to be you know the, the time in which max moved everything to to ashland pennsylvania and they ran that and they were basically a contractor so that was again making for third party a lot of it was i think government contract work so mm-hmm. for the military yeah and and then just making for various third party brands but it wasn't licensing it was it was different just simply like we're making this shirt for a company, B company, C company. There wasn't a like a a, a a legal document binding that process, which is licensing. And then he passed away in the early '60s, and his sons Alfred and Shelley took mm-hmm. over, uh, identical twins. Oh wow! <laughs> and, and and the story goes that you could tell them apart because uh, Alfie fancied plaids and Shelley wore solids. <laughs> And we had a, a, a in-house designer, Pulitzer was his name. You can still find some of his stuff on eBay. And then, and and you had we had salespeople, a kind of you know they were independent salespeople working for for Ashland Shirt and Pajama Company. That's what it was called mm-hmm. um, until 1978. And they got together and 
there were some more kind of like internal issues why they kind of needed to rally and some finance things. Um, and they wanted to put together a brand and the sales team and actually one of the sellers is still with us wow. from, from the founding in 1978. They proposed to Alfie and Shelley that they create a brand called Gitman Brothers. And of course they were piggybacking off of, of that other, you know, yeah. brother brand <laughs> Brooks, um, at the time. And they came up with the brand in 1978. And then it was kind of, you know, full on. And their heyday was, I would say, you know, late 70s through the 80s. And then, of course, each year that NAFTA grew stronger, yeah. you know, it, it impacted um, impacted the the domestic business. And then, and then the company that I worked for and purchased Gitman in the early 90s, IEG, kind of took over. And Burberry came in a few years after that. In the 70s, how many shirt makers do you think there were in the U.S. as compared to now? <laughs> 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 hundreds yeah hundreds uh down to a handful that's yeah. so depressing and so along the way i think i've i've read a little bit about you that you discovered um the original line books i think yeah yeah Tell so yeah so it was in um well the factory had a very uh interesting setup you had a, a kind of traditional factory floor which was you know the equivalent of maybe like a football field you know and kind of dimensions and then there was a, at the back of the factory a staircase going up and built on top of the factory was a four room kind of house, if you will, with just single floor, two bedrooms, living room, two bathrooms. And that's where Elfie and they lived above the factory. They, they had their own homes. I shouldn't say that, but okay. they used it. <laughs> I was really a, kind of freaking out. Okay. Yeah. yeah as, as, a, as a kind of, you know, working late, spending time here at the factory, going home on the weekends or staying there Tuesday through Thursday, or just, just having a, a, a different space, if you will, at, at the factory. They had uh, this wonderful cedar-lined closet, and I'm not sure whose room it was, but this wonderful closet. And it, when I started to ask around at the factory, there was no such thing as an archivist or someone who was the woman at Human Resources. Uh, God bless her. She would, you know, over time start to find things and send me things. Uh -huh. But it wasn't as though I, you know someone directed me, Chris, go to this room, go to that room. That's where we keep all the old line books. That's where we have all the old patterns. No, it was me just kind of stumbling across things and finding them. Cool. And, um, and so the cedar line closet wound up being kind of like the treasure trove of, of Gitman's past. And then I found line books going back to 78 up until like the late eighties or so, but the line books in particular from 1978 to 1983, um, contain all the swatches from the previous lines, all the models, all the details. And so that became the kind of template for me to start vintage. So, you know, I looked at the old shirts cause we still had a few and, and they would come in over time. Uh, Shelly's um, nephew would constantly, when they're cleaning out various, you know, uh, closets and things at home <laughs> would bring in shirts by like the bag full and, and, <laughs> And they would pass them on to me, and I. A lot of the, of the collection offerings were based off of that, and also out of the the old line books where we just have the fabrics remade. That's amazing. Um, and and use the old chalk buttons and the double track stitching and the locker loop and all of those those wonderful hallmark details of the Gitman Brothers shirt um, back from its its start 
we kind of stopped making because we were kind of chasing whatever was happening within the industry and, and Burberry interfered a little bit with kind of what we were as a brand. And so vintage was a, a, a kind of a, a looking back at our past, but you know, I changed up the fit a little bit because it was, it was a little too voluminous, a little too much shape to it. So it made it a little bit trimmer, but not that much. And then each season I would just kind of put in a few archival pieces. Um, and to this day, we always have anywhere from 10 to 15 styles in the collection that are from the archives. They become oh. a little more basic over time, but they're still there. And was it hard to convince Gitman Brothers to let you pursue this? And, and at what point did you know that it was going to be successful? Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, it was I mean, one great thing about the company is they've always been very encouraging. You know, everyone's their own entrepreneur and, and wanted to see if I can make a run at it. But I do remember the first show, I, I really didn't know much about the trade show kind of scene and circuit. The first trade show I brought the collection to was Project. And that was 2007, the summer of 2007 or eight. No, summer of 2008. And I remember... Um, with my wife and we were going and, and I literally had 30 shirts and had them just folded very, very casually. And we put them in, I mean, it's embarrassing, but I'll tell I mean, we literally had big <laughs> shop like paper shopping bags from, I don't, I don't know where it was. We, we both had like three each and, and I was telling her, I said, who the hell is going to buy this? I'm so <laughs> nervous. I don't know what I'm doing. Like I've never done a trade. I, I just, I'm going into this so blind set everything up on the rails and and merchandiser at the time for the Gitman, but was helping me out in the booth. Um, I said, you know, no one's here. We opened up two hours. I went to get some coffee and look at my phone. She's calling me and it's like, hey, what's going on? She goes, there's someone in the booth. I go, well, just show them, you know, the line. I'll, I'll be right there. She goes, no, you need to get here. It, it, it's, it's, it was first, it was Barney's. And then after that, it was Ron Herman. And, and I was like, oh my God, you know, kind of came back. And, and it was, yeah, it just kind of, it took off in this wonderful way and in these accounts and I couldn't really kind of believe what was happening. And, you know, it was, it was a wonderful feeling and moment. And then, then you started, then began the kind of process of discovery and, you know, how to, how to brand and who to talk to and, and, and kind of where to show and where not to show. So along the way, were there milestones that, that you recognized as the brand would be successful or that it would make it? Yeah, I would say, I mean, those first five years were incredible because it was almost as though we were doubling, not doubling, but we had significant double-digit increases season after season. I would say there was a moment, it was our first Pitiamo, and this was our third season showing, and it was in the winter, and we were showing Pitiamo, and Tom Brown was the debut designer there. We got a wonderful write-up in WWD, and there was a little aside that, you know, Gitman makes shirts for Tom Brown, which they didn't like, which is understandable. because <laughs> It got out. It was the press. And then there was, we had a nice write-up as well. And at the time, we were showing right across the hallway. We were showing in the pavilion, L'Altro Omo. Um, Pity's this huge kind of this old uh, fortress, if you will. Um, all these pavilions, and we're showing right across the hall from, um, which is an open kind of floor plan from Engineered Garments, and that was great because I became friends. We showed together for eight years, nice. uh, and became friends with them. But it was 
then introducing the product on one day, it was United Arrows, Dover Street Market, and Adrian did the buy. I don't know if you know Adrian, but Adrian is the husband of Ray Kyle Kuba. Right. And, and he did the buy for Gitman Vintage for Dover Street Markets. And it was just kind of one of these days of, of order writing where it was just a kind of uh, a wish list of accounts and people. And, and, and that was for me a real kind of like, you know, epiphany of, of sorts because I felt like, okay, this is headed in the right direction and selling to the right accounts. And did um, you have a celebratory dinner at Sestanza? <laughs> Butter chicken to celebrate? <laughs> we, we oddly had a celebratory dinner there. Well, it was dinner. we could never get in for dinner. We hardly get in for lunch at places. Impossible, come to think of a Sestanza. But we did have many a celebratory drinks at, at, at <laughs> I love that. So 2020 has been unique, <laughs> but has also brought some some manufacturing challenges for you. Can you talk about the decision to move production from Ashland to uh, Lafayette, Tennessee? Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was very challenging. It was, um, I mean, going back, you know, going into it, knowing me what to expect. Um, you know, production. We we have nine different manufacturers. We have three different shirt manufacturers in the U.S it was a very challenging decision to make, but we were doing it in order to save jobs. Yeah. Um, and we transferred all the machinery, uh, a couple of, of key sewers and technicians um, to our new facility. Um, were, they, were they happy to go to warmer weather in Lafayette? I, I think so. <laughs> Jury's still out on that because okay. there's a weird cold spell running through there, but, um, <laughs> but Overall, yes, it, it, it was it was it was challenging. It still is, you know, just kind of moving, you know, a huge factory and a huge warehouse to another facility. But it, it like I said, it was needed to in order to save a number of jobs um, and also continue production as we were doing at one facility and moving it to the other. That was that was a hard decision to make during that kind of period. We we were shut down in Ashland. Um, I petitioned to Governor Wolf, Governor of Pennsylvania, so to get us to reopen, and um, our wonderful team at the factory figured out how to make um, medical gowns for PPE, so we did that for about three months, wow. um, and then got the lights back on slowly to start up regular production, and we're doing both simultaneously, PPE and shirt production, and then we finished the the um, the order the work we had for the orders that were outstanding for PPE, and then started to to kind of ramp up and down production for Gitman, and then transfer everything to our new facility, which was a lot of trucks back and forth, moving a lot of machinery and a lot of fabric. Is it just less expensive to do business in Tennessee than Pennsylvania? Or? Yeah, yeah, combination of that, and also you know we had to look at you know the. The, the buildings themselves, yeah, exactly. the, the equipment, was, you know, moving people from, from A to B, what made the most sense from a financial point of view, uh, efficiency points of view, a lot of things that, you know, it, it, at the end of it, when people are going through, you know, all sorts of, you know, closures, you know, you, you got to look at the bottom line and, and ultimately that's what the decision was about. So. But, but you will always have production in America. Yeah. Yeah, that's then, I mean, our, our founder, that was that was incredibly important to have that, um, you know, there, there's something about just going into the factory, both at Ashland and, and, and at Lafayette, where I've been a few times already, you know, sewing, you know, a shirt really kind of touches the, the human spirit, so to speak. There's nothing like just, you know, watching someone make a garment from beginning to end, 
and it's that's always inspiring for me and and kind of sharing that story and the passion about the product at, at the end of the day that's what motivates me and and uh, to get out there and, and and share that with with our customers I, i've read that your 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 ethos is uh take nothing for granted why is that important to you and what does it mean to you because you never know when life's going to deal you, uh, you know, 2020 or 2008 or, or, you know, have, have, you know, my, my own, my own examples, you know, there, there is. And I think particularly as, as one goes through these, you know, pandemics, or if you, you know, have a serious injury or some kind of trauma, um, you know, you really can't take anything for granted. You know, you got to enjoy the day as much as you possibly can. It's snowing today in New York. Is it? And uh, yeah, and it, it, it's just kind of, um, you know, a, a beautiful time for me. I always love the first snowfall. You know, I have a, a, a tradition. Brings you back to Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> so I, I think it's important not to ever take anything for granted. And also always, you know, kind of, for me at least, I like to say yes and, and see what happens. You know, it kind of, I think regret is tied to, you know, not taking things for granted. You know, when you regret things it's you know kind of those two things on kind of weigh on me so it's something like when you like to appreciate what what you have so what's next for you and Gitman? what's next for us um well we're just wrapping up just waiting on the samples for fall winter 21 to arrive and then start sharing virtual market dates with our <laughs> with our customers and then you know it's this business, as you know, it's kind of like you're you're looking back, you're looking straight ahead, and you're looking to the future. So um, then I'm working on spring 22. So it's it's yeah. kind of it's there's always something to do. I really can't wait to hear what you were to the prom. <laughs> what about homecoming? <laughs> Literary days. Let's right, say. right. Well, prom was like. Okay, prom was always a rented tux. I never had a tux. I mean, any any high schooler had a tux, hats off. Um, <laughs> but it was black, two button, just simple like notch lapel, whatever. Mm -hmm. Simple studded shirt, clip on bow tie, but but this was the era of run DMC. So I did wear black and white Adidas gazelles. Okay, that's rad. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and do you remember what your date wore? Um <laughs> No. I want to see a purple dress. I'm, I'm now I'm confusing. I'm not. I'm, that's terrible. I'm now confusing homecoming and other dates. I'm trying to think. Of <laughs> well, you didn't marry her. No, I didn't. Well, <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for um, spending the time with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.